0: I hope you like
1: those uh, few songs leading up to Rational Radio this morning As for always, we've got a cracking program coming up for you (laughs) Be sure to stay with us It's a warm welcome this morning from Alec Hogg, uh, coming to you from the richest square mile in in the whole of the continent of Africa, uh, from Santon, and look forward to being in your company for the next hour. We've got uh, quite a program for you coming up today. We will be uh, crossing in just a moment to an uh, interview I had with Alan Knott Craig, uh, the mm, Afro or South African optimist, I guess you could call him He calls himself a realist uh, I think he's on the money And 50,000 people read his story Which we put onto Biz News earlier this week After that we'll be talking to Candace Payne Who's my favorite personal financial advisor She um, has done a lot of work for Biz News over the past Writing bits and pieces for us And we're going to bring her in as an agony aunt Into the future And I think you're going to find uh, the insights that she has are Quite enlightening And then, well, the big interview of the day, I guess. Jared Watson, the nephew of the um, deceased Gavin Watson, chief executive of Bosasa. It is, uh, the wounds are very raw, no doubt. And uh, Jared has agreed, though, to come on the program with us today just to give us his insights. Um, We have seen this morning, interestingly enough, a report on Times Live which says that an unnamed source at the South African Revenue Services uh, claims Gavin Watson funneled 500 million rand into a trust account in Guernsey. Wow! I'm sure D. Jared will have his thoughts on that one. Then David Shapiro will be talking to us later and uh, closing off the show today. Bernard Mustard from Techie Town. He's the guy who, together with his mentor and uh, the founder of Techie Town, Bernard was the chief executive. Were duped out of 3.3 billion rand by Marcus Yoster 3.3 billion rand. It it, it beggars belief, doesn't it? it? beggars the imagination. But anyway, let's uh, kick off with the first of our discussions today, the first of our interviews, as uh, I caught up with Alan Not Craig last night as he was on his way back to Cape Town uh, to talk to him about this incredible story of his that has, or this this piece of his that is got so well listened to, and exactly what was it that motivated him? Uh, let's have a listen. Oh, money, no, no. What's up with Alan on, on his way back to Cape Town from Johannesburg, and no doubt ears buzzing because so many people are talking about the article that you wrote for Business this week, Alan. I mean, it really has been quite uplifting and quite inspiring, and it's not it's not unusual for you to do this kind of thing.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't say my ears are buzzing, but um, I've had the to WhatsApp forwarding the article to me, so it does seem to have done the an rounds. Thanks, Alec.
1: So what made you think about actually doing this, writing this, this piece in the first place?
0: Oh, you know, normal story. Uh, you get this feeling in your company and in the prize you go to with family and friends that there's a lot of negativity. And I, I personally don't feel negative. And then at some point you decide to share your rationale for being optimistic, and it results in an email, and the next thing you know, a guy called Alec Kok asks you to write something for his website, and, the, and a lot of people read that, so that's how it happens.
1: <laughs> but we've seen mixed response. Uh, we, as Afro or South African optimists are very clearly in the minority right now in South Africa. How do you deal with that, with a criticism that says, uh, you really don't know what you're talking about?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, there's a famous guy called Samuel Nair who said, um, pay no attention to the critics, don't even even ignore them. So that's kind of like a life life, uh, policy for me. But the truth is, you know, I might be wrong. And people who disagree with me have every right to disagree. The last thing is we live in a country with free speech, so that's all good. And for me personally, you know, the whole point of me being optimistic about South Africa is it's not so much about a rational argument, because there is no real rational argument saying that South Africa is going to be great. It's just about reality. I don't, you know, I'm an economic prisoner. Just, you know, having another passport is not the way to have a plan B. You really have not have to have a lot of money if you want to leave the country. And I don't have. So, so once I realised that, I, I'm, you know, I'm stuck here, then what's the point of getting negative about it? I'd rather just uh, commit 100% to my country and be happy. Um, And maybe it all works out, in which case I've I've made the most of my years here. and maybe it doesn't work out, in which case I'll have to leave anyway. But for me, um, there's absolutely nothing to be gained by being negative and staying in South Africa. Hmm.
1: It's it's quite an interesting... uh thought process that you went through there to say, well, I am a prisoner anyway. What the hell? Let's yeah. just make the best of it. Whereas many other people say, I am a prisoner. I'm, I'm angry about it. I will remain resentful about it. How did you cross that river?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Look, I think prison is such a negative word. It makes it sound like I live in South Africa against my will. I love this country. I've been privileged to travel to lots of countries in the world. I think I live in the best country in the world. I think for uh, bang for buck, you're not going to be better than this country. My family's here. The people who laugh at my jokes are here. This is my place. So I'm not, a, I'm not saying it against my will. I don't have to live in South Africa. My family and can live anywhere. We choose to live here. But as far as money is concerned, you know, to have the quality of life I have over here, um, I'm certainly an economic prisoner. There's no, there's no other country in the world that I can get this quality of life. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like uh, believing in God. You know, at some point you ask yourself, uh, is he around, he or she is she around, isn't she? And and, you've got absolutely nothing to gain by not believing in it, because if you end up going to heaven and there's a God, you're going to look like a fool. So I'd rather just work on the assumption that everything's going to work out fine in the end.
1: Hmm. Well, it's a good starting point to go from, but what do you really think about whether things are going to work out fine in the end? Well, I
0: really think that Cyril Ramaphosa is one of the best presidents in the whole world. So it's something to be proud of, and I think he's righting the ship, just like everybody else. feels like he could be doing more. <laughs> he could be doing faster, but I'd hate to be in his shoes. So but at the very least, we've got somebody running, you know, steering the ship that's um, going to put the institutions back on track. And I also think that we've got a lot of untapped potential. I think the state gets a lot of things wrong, just like other countries. The state gets a lot of things wrong. And if we had a lot of the leakage there, not just uh, corruption, but uh, inefficiency, that's all you really got to do. It's not like you have to discover the world's biggest oil reserves. So I think our country has enough potential. I mean, at the end of the day, your country is your people. I've travelled a lot in South Africa in the last few years for business reasons to all the small towns, and I never meet I never meet um, assholes. You know, I meet very nice people, black, white, Afrikaans, English, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, whatever, and they're very respectful. They share my values. They want to make a living and put their kids through school, and they don't want to steal. Yeah, it's a a wonderful country when you think of the people that make it up. So I just want to try to turn a deaf ear to all the headlines and and remind myself that it's a country with great people and great potential. And with the right leadership, I think we can get there.
1: We had one of your critics say that uh, he really enjoyed your piece on Biz News, but he hated the part where you say, (laughs) don't read newspapers. (laughs) What was behind that thought?
0: He probably owns a newspaper. <laughs> so, look, I mean, I'm a big fan of newspapers. As you know, i have all the support of Daddy Maverick. I'm a massive supporter of the free media and, and newspapers in particular. I think they've saved the country in the last few years when, when you think of crypto leaks, etc. But there's really nothing to be gained by reading negative headlines all day, every day, and t- uh, you know, getting frustrated about stuff that you can't influence. Funny enough, that probably more than that, I get a lot of... Um, Criticism that I, that I don't seem to like, Donald Trump. <laughs> that's, that's been a more of a recurring theme than, than any criticism of the media.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess that is another <clears throat> another uh, bone of contention with many people in South Africa. Uh, Mr. Trump is is extraordinary. Uh, you either love him or you hate him, and I, I, uh, and in this country in particular. But Alan, you've got a young family. Uh, a, a, a brood of young ladies are you do you feel that it's a safe place to be bringing up young girls
0: i've got three daughters um and uh, it is obviously a number one question in my mind all the time you know safety and security my wife obviously thinks of that stuff as well and uh, we just try to manage that as much as we can so i don't think it's i mean i don't judge anyone wants to leave the country, I'm in for that, like whether it's crime related or or you can get a promotion in Australia and you can't get a promotion here or whatever, I I don't judge any of it, particularly around safety and security, but again, you know, I I look at my options and I don't really have an option of living anywhere else, so, you know, I've just got to manage the safety and security thing and hopefully our community can manage it and hopefully the president can get uh, the cops to, you know, do their job. And it will all work out. But, of course, it's a massive – I'm not ignorant of that, and it's something I have to manage.
1: It's also something that is going to take a long time, given that how long it's taken to destroy so many of those state institutions. But, but I, I'd like to close off our, our brief chat by just getting a sense of what you found in Chwani. Now, you did a, an interesting uh, <laughs> a development there when you were between, I think, your, your – between businesses perhaps, but mm-hmm. just take us through what happened there and, and how you found the people reacted to the free Wi-Fi that was implemented. <laughs>
0: now, we did a massive project with the municipality at the time. It was an NGO project, Project D'Souzware, and we helped the municipality roll out uh, public free Wi-Fi in the townships. Huge success opened my eyes to how much uh, you can achieve when you work with the government. Um, so that has a massive legacy and something I'm very proud of. I, I learned a couple of lessons out of that. The first lesson I learned is I truly think that if you give everybody Internet in South Africa, by definition, South Africa will be a better place. You know? A lot of what happens happens because there's secrets. And the moment there's Internet, there's no more secrets. Secondly, um, uh, you know, it, it, the government's not going to solve our problems. The private sector's going to solve our problems. So we, and the government has to play a role, but we can't wait for the state to save us, you know, whether it's NHI or broadband or whatever it is. No one's going to save us. Only we can save us. And companies like Capitec were great examples of private sector solving a massive problem, which was the unbanked financial inclusion, in a for profit way, so rather than trying to have a state bank solve that problem. So private sector is the solution. And lastly, um, I think communities, like the safety and security thing, and the water crisis in Cape Town, funny enough, you know, it's getting like it's making government really local again. So you know, whether it's your neighborhood watch or whether it's – just monitoring your neighbours for water consumption, you know, people taking responsibility for their own communities, that can't be a bad thing. So, you know, all of those things together were the lessons I took out of City of Chwani and hopefully, hopefully the country, you know, the private sector and the government can work together. And maybe one thing I should add in here, you know, I remember my, I watched a TV program when I was young, about 11, and it was all about the hole in the ozone layer. And I, and I really got stressed because according to the TV, there was a massive one over the southern hemisphere and we're all going to die. And I went to my dad and I asked him, you know, what the hell, what are we going to do? <laughs> he kind of just looked at me and said, don't worry about it all, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and it turned out actually everything was okay, but there's no hole in there. So you know, that's what I tell my kids. And to a large extent, if you can't influence the problem, just don't pay attention.
1: Isn't that just lovely? Well, very uplifting start to the day, no doubt, listening to Alan Not Craig. And Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, reminded us, that there was a, uh, a tendency of human beings to look for the negative rather than the positive. And often we go, in fact, he put it at nine to one. So we look for, we're nine times more likely to pick up the negative than we are the positive. Uh, lovely listening to Ellen Knot Craig there. And, uh, well, we'll have more coming up in a
2: moment. Let me hear your flow, sisters. Oh. Coming up in a moment,
1: our soul sister on money and pain. It's a warm welcome to Candice Payne. Candice, we go back a long way. Uh, You've done a a lot of work for BizNews over the years. Um, I have indeed, Alex. Yeah, man. but but, uh, what makes a financial advisor an independent financial advisor? Just give us a bit of your background, your history.
2: It means that we're not connected to any um, service provider or product. So I have the freedom to scan the market and see what is best for my client and their particular circumstances. That's what makes me independent.
3: But how do you train
1: for it?
2: Well, my trend, I come through years and years of working in the asset management industry. Um, other financial advisors come through sort of a sales background where they might be selling insurance products um, or risk products. And then slowly get into the investment side of things because that's what's important to people is managing their money into retirement.
1: Hmm. And for some people, it's just survival. We had a, an email today, a genuine request from someone that I worked with uh, a few years ago who's in a desperate situation. I'm, I'm going to go through that quickly, and, and maybe you can give us some broad strokes on how she can help or h- sure. how, how you, could, you, you could propose she could be helped. She's the only breadwinner, uh, supports three families, earns only 20,000 Rand a month. Uh, she got a letter of attachment uh, or a letter from the bank to attach the house unless she paid off half of the arrears or 50,000 Rand's arrears. Uh, she went to all the banks, tried to get loans from them, then eventually couldn't get anything, looked on Gumtree, found loan sharks, borrowed 50,000 Rand from loan sharks to secure the house, now has to pay back 75,000 and really is in an awful way. Car repossessed and so on and so forth. It sounds to me like, uh, well, she, she, she's, uh, she's one of those uh, examples of, of many people in South Africa who perhaps with a little bit more financial uh, education would not get into these kind of situations, but what's your thought?
2: So, Alec, as you say, this is not a unique situation in the South African context, unfortunately. And if you look at the, the maths, you know, 20,000 Rand to support three families is near impossible. You know, so some of the soft things that she needs to be doing is encouraging the adults in those three families to, to look for work, um, as well and to help out wherever they can, whether that be looking after, you know, children in the area that they are or taking on laundry if they can't actually find formal employment. You know, just finding ways to, to help out because it's untenable. 20,000 rand doesn't stretch across three families. But her particular, you know, the thing that I'd like to focus on is, is the fact that she approached, um, a loan shark. Which really is the, the only uh, course of action that many people do have because they don't qualify for loans in the formal economy. Um, and these loan sharks are a socially embedded phenomena that, that many South Africans deal with. You know, some of the numbers that I've seen is that there are 40,000 of them operating across many, many informal Settlement, you know, and, and as with anything, there are good and bad ones. And, and what a person approaching a loan shark needs to do is find a good one because they are already in the informal lending business.
1: But I, I was just thinking about something else. I know the banks hate repossessing properties, and certainly in, in the townships it's even worse because you almost feel disloyal to your neighbor if you go and buy their property from an auction uh, from the bank. Surely the first point of call for her should have been to go to the bank and to try and find a way of addressing those arrears. Or are banks just so hard that that wouldn't have been an option?
2: You know, the banks are open to renegotiation and there are options available to people. It's really knowledge and access knowing what you can do, knowing who to speak to, knowing what you can ask. And that's the fundamental issue with financial education and financial planning in the South African context, is people don't understand what is available to them and they don't have um, the knowledge. And with everything in life, the devil is in the detail. So potentially there may have been an opportunity for her to renegotiate with the banks. But now that she is sitting in a position where she um, is owing money to a loan shark, maybe she can take that information and renegotiate with them, you know, and actually set up a plan that she can stick to. Because the other thing is they could, you know, the, the interest could compound so phenomenally that she's never going to get out of this debt. And that's not a win-win situation for either of them. The loan shark actually does want the money back. You know, they, they want a client that can pay and she wants to get out of the debt so it, it is around negotiating and talking and understanding the numbers more than anything else.
1: What about the new legislation that's coming out, which is attacking banks, I guess, in the one hand, is where it's saying that if you owe the banks more than 50,000 Rand and you earn less than seven and a half which, uh, a month, which is of, of course wouldn't apply to this, uh, this person, um, then you can get it written off. But I <laughs> guess loan sharks aren't going to be listening to that legislation.
2: So loan sharks are unregulated and, and they're illegal. So, you know, they are lending money illegally, but it's not illegal for somebody to borrow from them. So they fall right out of the ambit of any sort of regulation. But the National Credit Regulator has put itself out there and said that if a loan shark has, for instance, taken your ID or your passport or your cell phone and, and is holding that as collateral against a loan, you could contact them um, to to retrieve those items and potentially shut the loan shark down. But as I say, these are these are useful services in um, various segments of the economy, and so there are better better and worse ones. You know, ones that are not um, charging the kind of interest rates that make it untenable for people to pay back. So if people are approaching loan sharks, what they probably need to do is consult with people in their community and see who who which ones work and which ones don't. You know, which ones are reasonable and which ones aren't. From the loan child's perspective, they also don't want to be viewed as soft, um, as, as handing out money and, and not really following up on the payment. So there is a lot of intimidation, there is a lot of shame that goes around in trying to get their money back. It's not a great system, but it's one that is working.
1: What do you suggest she does?
2: Alec, oh, I do not have a um, solution for her. You know, I think, I think more and more she needs to, <clears throat> excuse me, lean on the adults, the other adults in, this, in her situation potentially they have other accesses to borrow at this stage because we know that she has no more money. She ha- there's, there's no one else she can turn to. Alternatively, she can go to a kinder, in inverted commas, loan shark and borrow more, but you just get yourself more and more into debt. So from, from the outset, um, the numbers just don't add up. You know, numbers don't lie. 20,000 rand doesn't support three families.
1: Candice Payne. Uh, agony aunt. I couldn't really call Candice an agony aunt. That's, uh, that's uh, um, not exactly. <laughs> oh, please don't, Derek. <laughs> but uh, lovely talking with you, and thanks again for, for uh, giving us those insights.
2: Such a pleasure.
1: I'm going to turn the music down.
2: No problem.
1: Well, it's a warm welcome to Jared Watson. Uh, Jared, thanks for joining us. I know it's it's the wound is very raw from uh, the passing of your uncle Gavin. Uh, just just to go back a little though, before we get into the into the discussion uh, uh, around or the 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 incident surrounding that, we met when I came across to interview your father, uh, Valence Watson. Um, the 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 gossip mongers say that all the Watsons, yourself included. Uh, lived off Bossasa. Just maybe put the record straight there. Uh, did you did you draw a salary from Bossasa? Uh,
4: no, <coughs> excuse me, Alec. Uh, no, no. The, the rumours are not true at all. Um, we are not con- as a fam as an immediate family are not connected to Bossasa in any way, other than a familial relationship with my uncle, who was the CEO of the company, and 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 his daughter was an employee of the company as well. Beyond that, um, we had no re- business relationship with the company, and I didn't draw a salary, neither did my father or my brother, my brothers. Um, so the accusation of it being this pool of funds for the family is, is absolutely nonsense.
1: So what do you do for a living?
4: Uh, I'm employed by a company that's now uh, speculating in property, and we're looking at a potential energy pro- project. But beyond that, it's a small business business. Um, there's nothing really much else to say about it. By trade, I'm a, I'm a chartered accountant. Uh, that's my educational background. Um, so generally, I'm in a finan- financial and accounting position. Um, and yeah, there's nothing really else I could say about it.
1: Mm. So you're a chartered accountant. You know the numbers. Have, Correct. Uh, did you help Gavin at all uh, in with his numbers?
4: Yeah. So what, what, what's happened is with the whole state capture inquiry, uh, all our names have been thrown into the mud. Um, and given my, I guess, background and experience, um, I offered to assist Gavin in any uh, regards that I could. Um, and he asked if I could help do a forensic on accusations that are being made about himself, about his business. So in that regard, I've been trying to help in whatever way I can recently. Um, but that is only recently as a result of these allegations that have been raised. I have no historical relationship with the business beyond it being Uh, beyond my uncle being the ex-CEO of the company.
1: Are you a close family? Did you know him well?
4: Yes, I mean, we're all very, very close. Um, We've grown up together. Um, He's my dad's oldest brother. Um, I I think everyone who knows us knows that we're an incredibly close family. All holidays we spend together, we would see each other regularly. Um, Even in the last few years when I've been in Johannesburg, he would come around to the, the house every weekend. Um, our closest friends are family members, and that's how we've always been as a family.
1: And when last did you see Gavin?
4: I actually saw him the night before his passing. He actually left my home at around, I would say, somewhere in the region of 8 o'clock. Um, and that's when I last saw him. I was due to see him the following morning at, I said, any time between 7.30, 8.30. Um, we were going to be driving to Pretoria together. To see uh, uh, our attorneys uh, uh, in preparation for the following day when Gavin was due to appear at a tax inquiry, and um, and that's when I didn't hear from him the following morning. I I, I did some phone calls to see, you know, it was very strange that that he hadn't gotten back to me, Um, and then we realised he had passed a few hours before that.
1: What was what was his mood like when he left you on? Sunday night.
4: Very good. We, we, we had a wonderful weekend. It was my daughter's birthday on the Saturday. Um, he was here. We've got family pictures. Everyone had a, a great time. He said it was an incredible birthday. Everyone had a lot of fun. Um, we prayed together over the weekend uh, on the Sunday. Um, uh, my, it was my wife's uh, baby shower. We were expecting another child. And so all the men were over here at my place, and we spent some time together as a family, as we always do on the weekends. Um, and when he left here in the evening, he was very jovial, um, and we were he was well-prepared for his inquiry. Um, and, yeah, I didn't expect nothing out of the ordinary. It was a normal Sunday for us, I suppose.
1: You say a tax inquiry. Elaborate?
4: Um, it was uh, – I can't, can't say specifically when the date was, but a few months ago – Um, On the strength, I believe, of the accusations that were raised at the state capture inquiry, Um, SARS, I think, logically had to investigate the accusations, and a tax inquiry was called, and um, Gavin has already appeared before, and he was due to appear again yesterday, Um, yesterday, today, sorry, Um, he was due to appear again, and... um, And yeah, I don't know, I think it's a normal formality. I believe that, you know, they have to give their evidence, they're asked questions, and they have to give their answers truthfully, and it was nothing more than that. We were we had prepared a 400 page file of all evidence, um, supporting everything that he had to say, and it was due to be submitted, um, which we believed would have um, explained or cleared up his name in all regards. I've given much of that to yourself, I think, um, which you're aware of. and, and, yeah, sadly, he was never able to attend.
1: I'm not sure if you picked up the, the, the latest news, uh, the latest scuttlebutt, but there was a, a, mm. there was a piece on Times Live this morning that says, it quotes an unnamed SARS source, who says mm. that Gavin smuggled 500 million rand into a trust account in Guernsey.
4: And that's absolute nonsense, um, Alec. I'm fully aware of all his financial affairs. Um, it is something that we, has been part of this inquiry. So we would have put all that together. Gavin is, uh, I would, is not a wealthy man in the regards of, of his assets that he has beyond his shareholding in the company, um, which, of which he was a minority. Um, he, as I've said to you before, he's got a two bedroom townhouse in Krugersdorp. It's not nothing fancy. He doesn't even own a car. His car was, uh, was a company car that he paid fringe benefits tax on. Um, It it was, it was seized by the liquidators in February when they, when they were, they went into voluntary liquidation. Um, and has been at the office since then. Um, beyond that, he has a home which he bought in Port Elizabeth, which was in, in the mid nineties, um, before, um, Bussasa was anything. And really, there's nothing else to tell. Those are his assets. He has no foreign passport. Um, he doesn't travel regularly be, uh, beyond the borders of South Africa only in the past for business um, there's nothing really else to say um, the only person I know that has assets overseas is Angelo Gritzi, the man making we believe all these allegations uh, He he's the person who has a foreign passport he has a mansion in Italy he has an olive grove in Italy he has assets outside the country Gavin has nothing and and um, there's nothing really, I mean, the allegation is absolute nonsense. If, if there is 500 million Rand overseas, whoever is making the accusation is welcome to go and get it hmm. because we know absolutely nothing about it.
1: That, that uh, car that you've mentioned now, there were reports immediately after Gavin's passing that uh, he traded in or he'd taken his BMW X5 and hmm. handed it in at Bossas and taken out to Toyota Corolla on Friday. So uh, what car did he arrive at your home on, on, on Sunday?
4: I actually cannot remember what car he was in. He might have been in that car already. I, I can't recall. Uh, but for some time, Gavin hasn't had his, his BMW. It's been parked at the office park since um, since sometime in February uh, uh, when, the, when they entered into voluntary liquidation, uh, which was um, precipitated by the, fang, the fact that the bank's um, had said that they would be withdrawing their banking facility. Um, the liquidator uh, who entered the office park seized all the cars and that vehicle has been there since February. Um, there's, there's really no complexity to the story beyond that.
1: Hmm. What, what was he doing then at the airport at 5 o'clock in the morning if he was going to be coming to see you at top of 7?
4: Yeah, the, the, I mean, that is the... The great question, Alec, Um, we are investigating. We don't know. Um, It's merely speculation at the moment. I don't know if maybe he was going to have a meeting at the airport. It is a regular spot to have a meeting before someone flies out of the airport. Um, Before he came to see me, maybe he was um, – Busasa ran, which I think people are well aware of. Busasa did security at the airports. And generally what would happen is the staff would meet in the morning before – um, before work hours uh, I think I think um, work uh, uh, the work started at six and sometime before then they would have a prayer and they would sing a, a worship song um the staff at the airport I don't know if maybe he he wanted to be there for that he uh, because he was awake and he decided to go I don't know if I actually don't know we don't know anything really at this stage um, I'm just merely speculating
1: Jared, I've spent a little bit of time with your family, and I, I, I think your Christianity is pretty authentic. Um, mm. Yet the the way that it's being viewed is as a cult. Um, those those prayer meetings, or, or the singing of the Basasa staff at the airport uh, every morning mm. that you've mentioned now, is that something that's done voluntary, or is it? Do they have to do it?
4: No, of course not, because I mean, Gavin's Gavin's not at the airport every day, so so. If, staff decide that they want to sing a song and have a prayer in the morning before their, their, their work hours start, that's a decision of the staff. Um, no one's compelled to do anything. My uncle is not, was, would never be there every morning to be there for that. I think he almost never was. Um, prayer meetings at the office park were Um, This accusation that is the cult is disgusting to me. For me, I don't even uh, – it's an attack on Christianity in general. I mean, Christians around the country meet for home group meetings, for prayer meetings – they attend church on, on Sundays. My, my church, we've had a 24 hour prayer meeting before, just like they've had at Basasa. And um, these are regular occurrences in the, in the Christian church in South Africa. Um, so for me to even suggest that, that this was a cult is disgusting. I mean, this business was used to provide so much support for Christian and non-Christian causes, any, any good cause. I mean, it's on record where the business was supporting the schooling of thousands of people over the last few years, um, where they were investing money into, into church organizations. Um, you know, it's just, I, I, I'm dumbfounded by the, the, the mere accusation of this being a cult. People coming together and praying together in the mornings before work started. Mm.
1: It's quite. It's, uh, from the, the family's perspective, how have they taken this, given that you are such a close family?
4: Yeah, it's, it's been hard because it was unexpected. Uh, Gavin was a very, very healthy uh, 71-year-old man. Um, I think everyone who's ever met him would say to him, I cannot believe you're 71 years old. You don't look 71. Um, so, uh, I mean, he would laugh about it. That He even said that um, at the tax inquiry, the, he said the chairman came up to him and said, I, I refuse to believe you are 71 years old. You know, and, and he laughed about that. Um, so he was very good for his age. He was very healthy. So it's unexpected and obviously, we don't know too much about um, about how he passed. Um, so that's never nice. But at the same time, he, he was a born-again Christian. We are all Christians in the family. Um, we believe that Gavin is uh, in a perfect place now where without pain and suffering. And because of that, we can celebrate him. So when the pain we feel is for ourselves, that we won't get to see him for some time.
1: Jerry, just to close off with, do you think there was any foul play?
4: Um, Alec, we're not ruling it out at this stage. Um, We've heard before uh, accusations that have been raised in the media where apparently Mikey Schultz told News24, I think, that, or, or just reported News24 that uh, Angelo Gritzi um, had offered to pay him money to uh, assault Gavin in March 2018, which is the same time I've provided emails to you where Angelo Gritzi and his cohorts were wanting to come back into the company, um, so it doesn't make sense. Um, the only bit of evidence we have is that Gavin Watson's uh, phone uh, wasn't found, and we were doing a track on that phone um, on, the e- on the day, and someone was assisting us, and the phone happened to be in Germiston during the day and then moved to Bryanston by 7, 8 o'clock at night, which is some time after he had already passed, which raises many questions. Um, because of this, we just can't rule out anything at this stage.
1: So there was a phone uh, in his yeah, possession, he, which, which when you got... It uh, was never, it,
4: found, never found in his possession, but, but we were tracing it, and during the day, it, the phone was in Germston, and then it moved to Bryanston in the evening um, at around 7 o'clock, I think it was. And we went with the police to go try find the phone, but they could only locate it to a radius of somewhere in the region of apparently 30 to 50 metres, so we looked around in the dark, and we couldn't find it, and then eventually we, we were no longer able to trace it.
1: Jared Watson, uh, a member of the Watson family, thank you for, for joining us today. We do thank really you, appreciate your, thank your you. discussion, uh, perhaps putting a little bit more, not perhaps, definitely putting more light onto a, a story that has got South Africa spellbound at the moment. We're talking in just a moment with David Shapiro.
0: We'll mm-hmm. be mm-hmm.
5: Wow,
1: that was quite an interview. David Shapiro is up with us now to talk about markets and uh, issues of uh, daily occurrence, uh, more, much more than, than the, uh, the, the shock of what's going on in the whole Basalysis saga. David, you were due to meet the Discovery analyst, the elusive Macquarie analyst uh, from Discovery, uh. Uh, in the past week. when We, we spoke about it last week. Uh, did you manage to do that?
3: We, I did do that. Um, I've got the report. It's highly technical. Alec, and uh, you know, I'm on a bit of a tirade at the moment, and the tirade is really why why I'm going like this is that after Steinoff, off after EOH, off uh, the Tongard, etc. I think there's a demand for clarity, and we want transparency. And you know, when there's suggestion that perhaps the figures are being stretched or nudged, you know, one one's got to satisfy oneself that. Uh, that that uh, you can buy the company on the on the numbers that are being produced, and and to try and explain, and and I'm I'm going to try and explain to people who are listening uh, what the difference is. You know, if you and I, I like to explain it in terms of rainfall. This is. The way um, that one looks at a life book, you know, because when you sign a life contract, it goes on for quite a few years. You make, uh, you, you you contribute your premiums on a, a day-to-day, uh, sorry, on a annual basis or a month-to-month basis. So, can you imagine if you if you've got a company or a property that's got a 40-year lease with Standard Bank, it's safe, and therefore each year your premiums are going to go up. Of course, that increases the value of the property because you've got a forty year lease with very uh with increasing premiums that will go up perhaps even beyond inflation. Uh compare that with a property of only ten years with maybe um, a fruit shop or something like that where you can't really trust the uh the ongoing premiums. So that those are the two extremes. So when you look at Sunlam and Old Mutual, they tend to uh, value their contracts on a 10 to 12 year basis or 20 year but in a maximum 20 years whereas discovery has stretched beyond that and that's where we're questioning it in other words we're questioning whether they've got that 40 year lease and whether they will continue to get those premiums um, you know on a on an ongoing basis and i suppose the market would be a lot more comfortable if um, you know, if they toned that down, or, or analysts would be comfortable if perhaps you got a if they weren't so aggressive on their accounting. It
1: sounds it sounds very strange because in business the whole idea is to be as conservative as possible. Yes, and the more aggressive you are, the more bells start ringing, uh, a la Steinhoff, Tongart, etc. <laughs> this is not good news for Discovery.
3: Well, we don't know the truth. You know what I mean? Actuarial science is something which is so complicated and very, very difficult to understand for accountants and laymen like us. Um, And and that's why these analysts – and what's good about it is that Larissa – and I think there's uh, Craig. I don't know what his first name is uh, from Cape Town – have raised the debate. In other words, before analysts, there were a number of institutions. I'm on a pension fund, a um, fairly large pension fund, that does, hasn't had discovery simply because they, weren't, they didn't feel comfortable with the, with the numbers. And so it's been very much in the institutional domain. And what, what the public is now asking and what other funds are asking, explain your accounts to us in greater detail in a much more simple way so that we can be satisfied you know that that uh, the value that we're paying for you is is uh, sustainable, and that's why it's coming to the public domain. And I think that's the good good uh, side of this uh, Larissa's report and so on. Um, and probably the truth is in the middle somewhere. <laughs> you know, that's like all things. But I think that's what Discovery are going to have to come out in the results and really address it in in easy to understand ways, so that you know you can finally make up your mind whether it's cheap or not.
1: But surely there are two things. As an accountant, mm. uh, you know that there are certain write-off periods that you're allowed yeah. to impose. There's certain rules about capitalizing costs. Uh, these things are, are specific and clear, and you can't really fool, or sometimes you do get auditors and get fooled, but not too often. In yep. this case, with insurance, what you're saying or what I'm hearing from you is that there are different rules for different companies and they apply well, it in a different way. That doesn't sound right.
3: That, that's exactly the point that Larissa was making and that we tried to find the truth. Do they reckon because of maybe vitality, maybe because of the quality of their clients, uh, that they may be uh, wealthier in a, a different category, in a different what would you call it um, income set, you know, that that they, they've got greater clarity over uh, the sustainability of these, um, you know, of these premiums. They're likely to last for 20, 30, 40 years, whereas perhaps uh, old neutral and sunlum, um has a different client base at a lower income level where you know, 10 or 12 years is the maximum from their, for, you know, from their history of, of how long these policies last. So that's where the debate is. You remember Liberty. Liberty used to be, uh, the rich man's insurance company. You know? <laughs> so it was, it's, it, it's almost that kind of, um, attitude. You know, Liberty were on, on the ridge in Bromfontein. Things have changed. Mm. And that's, that's the point. Things have changed. You know, Liberty is not what it used to be under the Donald Gordon era. Uh, also, the economy has changed. So I I, said, I think we would all feel a little more comfortable if we if if it could be explained in a much easier way for us. And that's that's what we're looking at. We're not having a go at the company. We're trying to satisfy ourselves, uh, uh, Alec. You know, we're trying to satisfy ourselves when we buy these shares for clients uh, that we're not going to get any shocks. You know, that we're not going to we're not going to trip over our shoelaces or fall into a pothole.
1: Doing your homework, Uh, basically.
3: Exactly. That's exactly what we're saying. And we need to do that, uh, particularly after what we've gone through over the last year, Alistair of EOH and Tonga and the resilient, you know, things like resilience and the fortresses and so on. So we're very sensitive at this stage about these kind of issues, you know. I love this, we, David. It's, mm, it's mm.
1: trust but verify. And in this case, yes. what you've just explained to me now, I have big questions myself about a company that I've trusted but not understood how to verify. <laughs> <You> <laughs> that, know. That,
3: that, you, you, it's exactly it. You've, you've, you know, you've articulated exactly, you know, the, the questions we're asking. We're not… We're not going at Adrian. There's no jealousies or anger or uh, desire to see these companies fail. We just want to know that we're not going to face uh, one day a, a publication of results where suddenly um, numbers are down 20, 30 percent, and and uh, we're left standing. Like uh, so. Cecil. Another one. Sorry, I should have brought that in as well. Absolutely right. Same thing. The pain that we suffered on Cecil. Same. Exactly. I, uh, you know, another one to add there. And it's these kind of shops. And these are big companies, Alec. They're not small businesses. They, they multi-billion rand businesses. And, uh, taps have been hurt. You know, investors have been really, really battered and bruised. And, uh, they, they, they want a little bit of truth.
1: What did you make of Cecil's uh, announcement on Lake Charles? Because it seems as though they're now finally starting to open up or, or give us more detail.
3: Well, the results will come out. Now, the, the market seems to have discounted the worst, um, but I can't say that. <laughs> it just seems to have stabilized around about the 270-odd level. But you must remember, a year ago, this was a company, or just over a year ago, the company was a double the price. So we've seen, we've seen a huge write-off of value in, this, you know, in the economy and, the company. and as I've said to you before, uh, some of it is the economy. A lot has to do with the, uh, with the accounting practices and perhaps the over aggression of, of managers or managers being over aggressive in trying to expand their businesses. Uh, very much like General Patton. Remember General Patton, you know, he just wanted to get to Berlin. The only problem is that the logistics behind him, the food trucks and, uh, <laughs> and all the other logistics that you need to drive an army couldn't keep up. Mm. And, uh, and, and we're in that kind of situation. Everybody wants to get to Berlin, but uh, uh, you, know, you haven't got the logistics or you haven't got the infrastructure to allow you to do it or even the money in, this, you know, in many cases, the it's, funds.
1: It's so interesting that a lot of criticism from investment analysts, if you look at the big companies, is the biggest of them all on the JSC, Nespas. And yet, uh, from where I sit, understanding, uh, I hope, my industry, the internet industry and and, uh, the digital world, they are a company that – they're the last ones that I'd be be questioning Uh, because if you have a look at the network effect of – of their biggest asset being mm. Tencent and, and half. Yeah. Tencent is effectively an Instagram, Facebook, Google, mm. <laughs> and, and eBay all put mm. into one mm. in China, mm. which is a bigger market. Yeah. So, mm. man, that, to me, that's a huge asset. Yet, uh, they've got criticism. What was the reaction to to the latest moves by them? We've had the annual general meeting. We've now had... Uh, uh, oh, the announcement no. of process being being uh, being listed,
3: very positive. I think I think what's very positive is that Alec, we're starting to see a business you know that's now um, going to be based in Amsterdam, and I think subsequent to Tencent and you know the the facebooks and that, there's quite a bit of quite a bit of criticism now being directed at the power that the Facebooks, Amazons have, Alibabas and so on. In other words, that they dictate society. They can actually dictate uh, the way that you act and the way that you uh, conduct your life. But I think with technology now, there's so much more room for new businesses. And I think the hope, and I'm I'm reflecting the views that I'm getting around me here, the hope is that now Bob van Dijk being based in Amsterdam – uh, while having Tencent as a big support mechanism can actually start to grow other businesses, um, and use his entrepreneurial expertise in that area, uh, to create, um, you know, almost, a, you know, another, uh, another Tencent. So I think there's quite a bit of optimism around it. So let's give him a chance. I'm happy to give it a chance. And- so I'm really, really happy to give him a chance and to see where this goes. Because it's the only company in South Africa that we can really participate in, uh, in, in the way that things are going in the world economy, the way that things are changing.
1: What did you do with your Naspers shares? Did you just hold we, on to them or did you sell them to
3: – We're going to go for the uh, deal. For the yes, we're going to pay, pay a lot of tax to the South African government, a lot of capital gains tax. But I think in any case, you're going to pay that somewhere along the line. So you may as well take it up front here. But uh, we're definitely going for the deal.
1: Well, on that score, to close off with Dave, did you get a chance to read Tito's turnaround plan for the yeah, economy?
3: Yes. It's a cut and paste from the national development plan, but good for him. I, you know, I like Tito. He's, a, he's trying. Uh, uh, and... Good for him. I've got to, I've get him to. Whether he can ever get this off the ground, you know, beyond just sending out memos to other cabinet ministers, but at least you know he's 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 got a bit of energy and he understands exactly what's happening. He's not politically moved. He knows what he has to do, and I've seen that on many occasions where, uh, uh, you know, where I've where I've met him or not socially or bumped into him and that. He's, I, I think maybe we underestimate him. I don't know where you stand on Tito, but at least he's giving it a go.
1: David, uh, Tito and I never spoke to each other for about eight years. And then through his generosity of spirit, because I did I did criticize him. Uh, well, I criticized the post, or the, the post is not the person, but he didn't see it that way. But eventually oh, no. we met, we had a cup of tea. Uh, he was very generous. He forgave me, <laughs> if you like, and uh, we've been uh, we've, we've been cordial ever since. Yeah, and, and I'm yeah. a fan. I'm a big fan. Okay, uh, I, he's mm. trying,
3: Alec. You know, he's he's really giving it a go, <laughs> and no. and he's not moved by by politics. You know, he knows what we have to do. But isn't it
1: good to see the national mm. development plan, which took so mm. much time to compile, mm. so much brain power to put together. It was driven yeah. by Trevor Manuel with yeah. the yeah. president, uh, Sura Ramaphosa, as the deputy. Lots of amazing commissioners looking at the most brutally honest plan that South Africa yeah. or yeah. any country I've ever seen anyway on an economic plan. It's now been gathering dust for nine years. It's been dusted off. And your finance minister picking it up and saying, right,
3: guys, we got the plan. Let's apply. Exactly right. And there is a plan. To make no the error. There is a plan. There are elements which we can develop here that can give growth. It's just get the politics out of it <laughs> and, uh, and get the entrepreneurs uh, into it. That's, that's the whole thing. Just keep politics away and, uh, you know, we can stimulate growth.
1: David Shapiro is the deputy chairman of SASFIN Securities. And as always, his forthright views. Oh, uh, here to be appreciated on Rational Radio. We've got, in a moment, Bernard Mostet, who is the former chief executive of Town. Now, this is a cracking interview. Uh, you are going to find some very, very surprising insights from this interview, not least uh, that forgiveness factor. You just heard <laughs> <laughs> how Tito Mbawini forgave me many years ago, thankfully. Uh, how Town's founder... Bram van Hasteen actually forgave Marcus Huster, believe it or not. Well, I caught up with uh, Bernard Mostert uh, yesterday afternoon. He wasn't able to come live on the show today, but uh, man, it was a fascinating discussion. We spoke for about half an hour. I cut it back to around 15 minutes, so we're going to go over our usual um, pumpkin hour on the show today. But I think you're going to find that it's well worth it. I asked Bernard to start off with uh, how Techie Town began, where did it come from, what, what exactly uh, was the beginning, and uh, this is how our conversation began.
5: He borrowed at the time from his family, and he turned that 20,000 rand into a business that we had sold a minority stake in in 2014 or 2013 to as and that actor's valuation at the time was roughly about 1.65 billion rand, if I remember correctly. Mm. And, um, you know, we, then we marched on. And then um, Brahm developed a love for horses through his daughter's show jumping career um, and crossed over into the racehorse industry. And there he met Marcus. And I think that was then, in hindsight, an ill-fated meeting. Uh, because that changed our path in, um, in many, many ways. They say that horses
1: yeah. are, are, are expensive, or racehorses are expensive, but my goodness, uh, your, your colleague, Bram, uh, has, has found out the hard way. But just from your perspective, when did you get involved?
5: I've known Bram since the age of when I was 11, so I'm 43 now. And um, we used to play um, Golf together for that Mossel Bay Town League team, um, and he used to come and pick me up on Saturday morning from my parents' home, and um, then we would go to Platinum Bay and i and play league golf. And you know, you always had these these um, wisdoms that you would say, "Let's just not three putt. You know, let's try and, <laughs> try and avoid the basics." Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, in hindsight, one of the basics that we missed is. You know, never sell a highly cash-generative, profitable business that you have full control of. Mm. Truth be told, this actors who was required to exit the transaction in the first step of the transaction because there wasn't, they couldn't hold Stearns shares in terms of the mandate, their investment mandate. Um, So they had to settle for a cash amount, and at first they wanted, you know, north of north of four and a half billion. Um, so they were negotiated down by this time of team, and I think that's one of the one of the, the things that really haven't surfaced is that the starting asking price for the business by our then investment partners were a lot higher, mm. but. And actors, of it, course,
1: are, are private equity, so they know exactly what, they, what the value is. But they agreed on $3.3 billion. They sold out. They got cash, one of the few people to walk away from a Steinhoff deal with money in their pocket. You got Steinhoff shares.
5: Yeah. So, so what had happened was that um, at the time, Marcus said, you know, we've bought Pepco from uh, Crispo and Breit, and... Pepco is a brilliant business in the, the white label space, but they have this uh, basket of speciality stores that they really just can't activate and that are struggling. So our business, and, our, and it, it has been in the press, so I, I think I can quote the numbers quite freely. Certainly, I know them by heart. Our business was a business where we looked at every single store should generate after it reaches a maturity point, roughly one million rands in EBITDA. And um, we had achieved that, and it led to us for a period of seven consecutive years, it always was the singular goal that we chased, we wanted to net an EBITDA number of 22%. So we did that. So people told us, well, wow, it was certainly a sign-off team, and it wasn't only Marcus, because there were many start off people involved in our transaction. Certainly, he was the front of it, but there were many, many style of people involved in our transaction, and many people had an opinion about it, um, told us this is a brilliant business. So, the proposal was, exchange your business for shares in our business. We will give you custodianship of those speciality stores, because they seem to be in your wheelhouse. It's businesses like Shoe City and Dunn's, and... Um, Then after three years, when you've put a result on the board, the shares will be worth much more or it will be worth significantly more. I mean, not that there was a value, but then also on top of that, the hard and fast metric around an earnout that would be paid and that was um, based on the EBITDA achievement that we would then have in the collective business. Ground zero here, if I can call it that, is the fact that um, Starnoff failed to publish its results. And then Marcus resigned. And then the implosion happened. And then the allegations. And then the, the wrongdoing started to surface. And um, we had then already taken control of speciality. We had one full quarter behind us. Um, we had momentum in that business It was doing well And we enjoyed working there During that period But then um, The first the first signs of trouble Was that Brown was appointed As the head of Pepco's Property division And uh, the reason for that Is because he is fanatical About property um, It is The second or first biggest cost on most retailers' income sheet after people um, or alongside his people. And he, Brom always said, you know, this is the death trap. Property is the death trap. So let's negotiate well right around it. So they gave him the responsibility for that because um, and again, we'll say it humbly. I think that in Turkey town, we had built up an incredible schedule. So, and that was all Brahm's work. You know, he left us to do all the other work, but when you said landlord, you had his attention, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brahm got involved with Pepcourse. Um, he was appointed by this, by the style of board as head of Pepcourse properties. And then with Marcus gone, Ben gone, Leon in charge. Leon called a meeting with with uh, Brahm and said, "You know, you're too entrepreneurial for us, and you don't quite fit in. And this is more of a corporate structure, you know." And in hindsight, I wish that didn't happen because Brom was willing to give his all to make that business better. And indirectly, through his holding in Steinoff, he was the single largest shareholder as an executive within Pepco. Um, so, you know, he had he had said, let's put our heads down and let's focus on, on what we can get out of this. So, in any case, they, they effectively exited the from the business. That's also the subject of another lawsuit.
1: The real story here is that you had all these shares which were once worth, well, when we take the total purchase price, three three 3.3 billion, now worth 35 million Rand. Your business is gone and you left with this worthless stock. What does one do in a situation like that, except in going and see the best lawyers you possibly can?
5: Yeah, well, listen, that's, I mean, that's the, the very first two things that we did. I can't speak for all my colleagues because I don't know how all of them handled it personally. Um, but certainly I found sanity in doing uh, one thing every day. I, had a, I made a list for myself and I SMSed people just to make sure that there wasn't a suicide. Mm. I think that there was, a, there, there was a suicide in 2008 around um, the the financial crash and I always said tragedies happen when people die. So I SMS people to make sure that they're okay and that they're hanging in there. And it was an interesting time. You know, it's also interesting who stays in touch with you today and who doesn't. I mean, that I say with a wry a right smile on my face. But mm. the second thing is that a, a day after the event, we walked into the offices of Weber Wenzel, and we said we want to ensure that we start the proceedings to have our business returned to us because clearly we have been duped. And then we decided in roughly August that we would start over, some of us. And, um, and we bundled together and we started Mr. Techie. And we have 28 stores today and I think you... More so than most people understand starting over <laughs> you know it's a it's a it's a like any business it's a difficult thing to start, but it's fun and there's 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 prices memories that oh yeah, and um we also look forward to to having our business back one day and we're building it um with a with a lot of um, you know uh, what do you call it credit i guess to our friend Lawrence Vernus at Studio 88, who has multiple chains that don't compete with one another. We said, let's start something that won't compete with Town for when we get it back. It certainly looks like the public supports the validity of our claim and, and, and also the judgment by Erasmus last week in the Western Cap High Court. But we've had no approach or engagement with Steinov. Um, we've obviously had quite an aggressive narrative from Pepco. Um, trying to shut down our current business, trying to fight us. Um, you know, and that that's in itself is a bit ironic to us because uh, the PEPCOR management themselves are suing Steinhoff for what they are calling fraudulent misrepresentation that happened in their case two years before our case happened. You know, so there's this Afrikaans saying, deler, so this no, I don't know, I don't understand how you can say I'm fine to hang on to this. A defrauded asset But I myself Is going to lay a charge Based on exactly The same premise
1: It sounds extraordinary uh, We did have A What I would describe As a usually Reliable source uh, Writing to us To say that Bram van Husten Remains very close To Marcus Uster That he defended Marcus Uster In radio interviews And this source Went so far As to say That Marcus's Bentley Was seen outside uh, Bram's Fan court property On regular Occasions now, those are pretty heavy allegations.
5: You know, it is, it's obviously something that that is um, either spun as a story or presented as a narrative, but the, the truth is that if you look at it, and it's... A, I think Brom has been out in the media with it. Um, I think it first came out on a radio show in about May last year where he said that... Um, Two or three days after Marcus's resignation, and Marcus came to him in person after he had sent him a message to say, cannot, "You will never be able to forgive me for what I've done to you." Um, and Brom said that um, if you look me in the eye and you ask me for forgiveness, then I will give that to you because I'm not going to be moved forward in bitterness and hatred and with a quest for vengeance. And also, um, I, hopefully, am wise enough to understand that you could not have acted alone. So, Marcus, at that stage, asked Bron for forgiveness, and um, make of that whatever you will. They have stayed in touch. I wouldn't say that they are extraordinarily close, but certainly the, the concept of wrong. Marcus is Bentley parked outside Brahm's Fancourt property is wish wash because Brahm himself doesn't live in Fancourt anymore. And I I think this year, good I looked at it, he spent 15, 15 days this year there. So I mean that's obviously just um, a, a rumour that's juicy. But but certainly I mean he has been in touch with Marcus and like he said to Leon, because Leon is um, standing firm and holding fast a defrauded business, he forgives him too.
1: Wow, those are very. There's an extraordinary generosity of spirit, but uh, in a in a cold, hard financial world, uh, in a place like Johannesburg, people will say he's trying to he's trying to hide something. Unfortunately, that's the way the the human psyche works. Is, is he is he really that forgiving?
5: Yeah, you know, I must say he is, and um, it's a. Uh, you know, that, uh, having known him all my life it's a, and, and a privilege to have known him all my life, I, I can say categorically that he is that forgiving. And, um, you know, I know not all of us are. And I think that all of us want justice, especially in today's society. Um, but it's, uh, I think, you know, certainly myself can take a lot from, from Brahms' attitude Around, um, you know, we walked away from it at this stage alive, and how we react to it is going to define us. And um, I am, I'm always amazed at this concept of saying, you know, because if you look at it, it's it it's, it is mind blowing that you can be that forgiving. But school wants his business back, and clearly, there's there's no amount of forgiveness that is going to make good on the fact that he's lost his life's work and that's why we've got a legal channel and a a court system and and clearly the momentum and the narrative in that respect is is very firmly in our case and and also in the case of everyone else who has a claim against Dino because everyone has been defrauded and and an environment has been set up in which we could be defrauded.
1: Mm. I'm sure there are lots of people in Stellenbosch who are shaking their heads when they listen to that part of it. But, Bernard, the one question on that and on the relationship between Bram and Marcus Uster right now that has to come out like a red flag is in the open letter to the PEPCOR CEO, Louis, uh, Leon Lawrence, as, as you mentioned earlier. Bram said he wants to see the full PwC report, the whole thing. Marcus Joester, in his court papers uh, earlier this month, said the same thing. He also wants to see the full PwC report. Are the two of them working together, perhaps?
5: No, I can categorically say that is not true. So uh, I think the whole country wants to see the full PwC report, and I think it will get to, uh, us to a, an outcome a lot quicker. Um, and it's regrettable that it's not published. But there is no form of cooperation at all um, with Marcus or anyone else who has been implicated.
1: Well, fascinating interview. I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, Very rational perspective that uh, we got there from the chief executive of or the former chief executive of Techie Town. They've now started a, a new line called Mr. Techie. You can just imagine if you have a business, it takes you 25 years to build it. Uh, you you find the right formula, you work late, as all entrepreneurs can can uh, can attest, and you you put this together. Along comes a company that wants to buy you. The price you put on it is four and a half billion. They tell you you can make more money by managing their assets. So you say, okay, uh, 3.3 billion. And eventually, that 3.3 billion is actually worth nothing, pretty much nothing. Well, 35 million rand is not nothing, but if you have to spread it through all the shareholders, you can imagine just about. Well, the, the uh, what must be going through those guys' minds. But that has been Rational Radio for this week. Look forward to being back in your company again next week. Remember the rebroadcasts, and remember to uh, pick up if you're a premium subscriber all of the transcripts, which are on BizNews Premium. Till the next time, from Alec Hogg, cheerio.